giant robot smashing into other giant robots. This is the Giant Robot Smashing into Other Giant Robots podcast, where we explore the design, development, and business of great products. I'm your host, Chad Pytel, and with me today is Sam Clements, partner at Accomplice VC. Sam, thanks for joining me. Pleasure to be here. So, Sam, you've had a long and winding road through, I think, five different product companies before uh, ending up as a partner at Accomplice VC, and you are also entrepreneur in residence at Harvard Business School. So I'm sure you know everything there is to know about startups, and you'll be able to share all that with us today on the show. Yeah, I might know one or two things about startups. (laughs) I would not even presume to know everything about startups. So let's start at Accomplice, which is... A seed-led VC company, I think is what it says on the website. Mm -hmm. What makes Accomplice different than other VC firms? Let me answer with why I joined them after doing a bunch of startups. Mm -hmm. And indeed, after actually being in venture capital for a couple of years and then going back to startups, why go into venture capital? Why do Accomplice in particular? Which which I think answers your question Mm -hmm. about why they're different. They were an investor in the last company that I co-founded, Insight Squared. And over the course of working with them in building Insight Squared, you really get to understand what a partner is like over the course of, you know, say five, six years. Mm-hmm. And um, it had gotten to the point where actually when just in the course of, you know, being an entrepreneur in Boston, you end up speaking to a lot of other entrepreneurs. It's a, it's a pretty tight-knit community. And, you know, people might come to me and ask for advice about, you know, product management. But, you know, invariably we end up talking about company building as well and financing and whatnot. And Accomplice had always been the company that I recommended people speak to first. Mm-hmm. About a year ago, I started thinking, all right, I want to try something new. And maybe that's a new career. Maybe I should think about venture capital again. The choice of which firm was actually pretty easy because at mm-hmm. that point it was, you know, this is the company that I've been recommending for five years. It also made sense that that was the, the company that I would want to join myself. So as a partner at Accomplice or maybe in general, what do you actually do? <laughs> I think I'm the wrong person to ask. I mean, I'm, okay. I'm, I'm, well, well, what I'm do in you this do? career for you know, only one year right now. Yeah. So what are you supposed to be doing? Who knows? Okay. Uh, I'm not the right person to ask, yeah. but I can tell you what I do. Yes, that's um, what I'm interested in. My take on it is, is different. For better or for worse, I'm, I have an operating background, mm-hmm. which I think is different than most VCs out there. And in addition, I'm a, I'm a product guy. Mm-hmm. I don't come from the sales or the marketing or go-to-market side of the house. Mm-hmm. Um, I come from the build side. And so I, I have a given background and maybe lens that I like to use. And so I think when you, when you get down to it, what, what VCs are in the business of doing is finding and building great companies. Mm-hmm. And I have experience with building the companies. And so I think that part so far is something I feel very comfortable with. Mm-hmm. When we're working with entrepreneurs to figure out the product development part of their business or the sales part of their business or the marketing part of their business. That's something that I I feel very comfortable with and comes easy so far. Mm -hmm. The other part that VCs have to do is they have to figure out which are the companies that they are going to invest in. And I don't mean that just from a money perspective. I also mean that essentially from a a time perspective. Mm -hmm. You know, once you invest in a company, you spend a lot of time working with them over the next five, seven, eight, ten years. Mm-hmm. And you can only do that with so many companies. So there's a certain amount of figuring out what are going to be those companies that you're going to work with over the next ten years. And that's something that I'm still thinking about, still figuring mm-hmm. out. How many companies does Accomplice invest in like every year? What's the scale of that? Each partner will do, say, uh, two investments a year mm-hmm. times five partners, mm-hmm. ten investments a year. Have you done one yet? Yes. 
invested in a company called Privy about a month ago. When you joined and started, was there an expectation of a timeline to operate on to get to making your first investment? Not explicit, mm-hmm. because I, I think that creates the wrong incentive structures. Mm-hmm. If you say, hey, you know, you need to have a certain investment by a certain time, then someone's going to rush to it. And you know, when you're doing two of anything in a given year, right. fall back on statistics. Those two things aren't going to be evenly distributed. It's right. not going to get you know one exactly on the you know the three month mark and then one exactly on the nine month mark. Right. So you need to be prepared to just kind of wait and find the right one. That said, we're there for a reason. You know, we have our investors as well. Mm-hmm. You know, they give us money in order for us to actually put it to work. So if you join a, a VC firm and then don't actually do the thing it is that VCs do, which is invest and build companies, then then why are you there? Mm-hmm. When you joined, were you given other things to do, you know, contributing to other portfolio companies operationally or added to their board or anything like that? Or were you exclusively focused on finding that first investment? No, of course. I mean, there's always, I mean, we have so many portfolio companies. Mm-hmm. And when you come in with an operating background, there's so many ways to, to put that to work for the good of the portfolio. Mm-hmm. So absolutely helping companies with thinking about product management, product development, or even even with you know things on the, the B2B go-to-market side. Mm-hmm. There's lots of that work to do. Do the portfolio companies come to you with Okay, we have this challenge. We need, or is it the other way around? Are you more driving, helping them? No, usually as an investor, you don't try and get too much into the weeds in the way right. of, of an entrepreneur, particularly mm-hmm. at the early stage. Mm-hmm. You invested in them for a reason. You need to trust them to execute through. And so, usually, what will happen is they'll say, "Hey, you know, I'm worried about this part of the business. You know, we just did a new product launch. I'm worried that we don't yet have product market fit uh, for it." Mm-hmm. Or, you know, we have a product that is two years in, and I'm worried that uh, we don't have an efficient enough go-to-market engine to make this work yet. Mm-hmm. And so they'll raise their hand and say, hey, you know, this is something we're having trouble with. And at that point, one of the, the partners who's working with that company will, you know, look around the partnership and say, hey, you know, we have a, an opportunity to help out a company here. Is there anyone that, you know, might be able to help the company? Mm-hmm. You know, Sam. You know, they have a question around product development. They're trying to add their first product manager and build a, a product development organization. You know, any chance you could go meet with them real quick and, and you know, help them get out on the right foot. Mm-hmm. So the people who listen to this show are typically designers, developers, product people who are working on their own thing or, you know, at a startup themselves. But they don't necessarily know the different stages of a company. Like, not I wouldn't take for granted that everyone knows what a seed stage company Mm -hmm. looks like. Mm -hmm. So, in your mind, what does a seed stage company actually look like? Yeah. So let me not use the word uh, seed and pre-seed because I think I think these are labels that are actually changing over time. Yeah. Back when I started doing startups, there was really the seed stage, which was kind of you know named after the the thing that turns into a tree. Mm-hmm. And then there was a sequence of letters that came after it. And now mm-hmm. it's more complicated. Now there's, you know, pre-seed and seed and all that. So let, let's put that aside for a minute. In my mind, there's several phases. Uh, the first phase is really you're trying to figure out if there's a, enough of a need and if you have a solution that can solve that problem. Mm-hmm. Essentially, this is the, the product market fit stage. The goal of the company is to see if there's product market fit. If they do that, if they find that they do have product market fit for that problem and their proposed solution, and often, almost always, you need to morph the solution until you do have that fit, uh, then you move to the next stage, which is, okay, now let's start to wrap a business around it. 
And what's interesting is you really don't have that business component at all. You really shouldn't at that first stage. You really should just focus on finding product market fit. Mm -hmm. So the second stage is, all right, let's wrap a business around that. Let's start to actually try and sell this thing repeatedly. Let's try and do a little marketing. Let's try and actually think about onboarding customers, customer success. Let's think about basically all of the other functions that then are essentially the, the N equals one of the functions uh, that eventually grow up to be the common functions in your business. Mm-hmm. But it's the very start of them. It's you know N equals one to five in marketing, sales, customer success, product development, engineering, finance. Mm-hmm. And then the third phase is really the scaling of those things. You know, in each of those areas, you've done the N equals one to five of them. And then the third phase is really the challenge of how do you scale that and keep it going. So each of these three phases, the product market fit, the early functional development, and then the scaling, each of them is hard in its own way, and they're very, very different. And I think what's interesting is oftentimes what hangs up founders is that they will they'll be doing the wrong thing at the wrong stage. They'll confuse those stages. They'll be trying to generate revenue when really they should be focused on finding product market fit. Mm-hmm. Um, they'll be trying to scale a function that they haven't really figured out the N equals one to five uh, piece of it yet. They're trying to do N equals 100 and they haven't figured out N equals five. Mm-hmm. So I think one of the, the clearest things that a founder can do is to really recognize what stage are we in and make sure that they really get it right before moving on to the next stage. As an investor, where do you come in? Which one of those stages do you come in? Yeah, Accomplice comes in likely at the end of the first, beginning of the second. Mm-hmm. When there is product market fit, they're starting to find that. And now the company's thinking about, all right, how do we build a business out of this? Mm-hmm. That's typically when you're starting to need a little bit more money because you're hiring you know, more people in each of your functions. And that's when you start to see a, you know, a certain trajectory in the company. So you mentioned Insight Squared. You founded that and you were the chief product officer for a long time, <laughs> eight years, right? Mm-hmm. You know, how did you as a founder go through those stages that you just described? Was it all easy? Oh, gosh, no. No. <laughs> difficult as hell. I, I, mm-hmm. All of these companies, you know, they're all difficult in their way. Right. You mentioned Accomplice was one of the investors in Insight Squared. Mm-hmm. Is that when Accomplice joined Insight Squared as a, an investor? It was right at that stage of the company? You you sort of had product market fit and you were trying to wrap our business around it? Yeah, so Accomplice did invest in our in our first institutional round. Mm-hmm. Thinking back through the stages as we moved through them, and I think the stages were actually pretty clean and clear. There was explicitly a stage where we were trying to find, do we have product market fit for this rather nebulous idea? The idea was... Could we do BI for SMB, business mm. intelligence, which was a, a very well-developed market, 30 years old, uh, dominated by very established players mm-hmm. like business objects and a set of others that all sold to enterprise. And essentially, the mid-market and SMB were underserved, You know, basically using Microsoft Excel or nothing. Mm-hmm. So could we do business intelligence for those the bottom two-thirds of the market? That's an idea, okay? But there's a big gap between, okay, that idea and do we actually have product market fit? What is our specific solution that people would want to actually buy and use? And so during that first phase, one of the tools that often comes up is uh, the idea of a minimum viable product. Mm -hmm. There was an explicit phase where we tested, okay, do we have a minimum viable product that people would pay for? And can kind of go into that for a second. The way I think about minimum viable product is, is somewhat unusual, 
But there was a phase of our development where we focused on just getting an MVP. Mm -hmm. And then there was a, another phase where we said, okay, we seem to have found something here. We, we have product market fit. We have people writing us a check for something that is not software. Let's see if we can do the initial formation of a business around that. Let's do the engineering and product development, product management to turn that into a working piece of software. Let's do the initial sales. Let's sell this from you know, the initial three companies to uh, you know, let's get to 20 or 30. Let's do the initial marketing, the initial customer success, the initial finance, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And then there was a phase pretty cleanly that followed it where we had working elements in each of those areas. And then the explicit challenge was, all right, now let's scale this thing. Mm -hmm. How do we make this as big and as quickly and successful as we can? You mentioned for your MVP that you were trying to find something that people would pay for. You know, in those stages, you said you shouldn't be focused on business model. How do you balance with making sure that you're building something that people will actually pay for? Yeah, so let's talk about MVP for a second. Yeah. It seems pretty easy on the surface. Mm -hmm. MVP, minimum viable product. The problem is people usually get the M and the V and the, the P wrong, in my opinion. Yeah. The M is pretty straightforward, means minimal, not hard to understand. I think the challenge there really comes in the, the practice. People tend to not make the minimal minimal. Right. Uh, when they're describing what they want their initial thing to be, it's got you know 11 features, and they're starting to think ahead through, you know, how would I start to maintain this, and what would the customer want next? And really, those are things that you shouldn't be thinking about for the MVP. You should really just be thinking about, if I were to strip away everything mm -hmm. until, if I were to take off one more thing, the core premise would not be valid. Like, you just couldn't actually use it. Mm -hmm. Then you're down to minimal. Okay, what is the essence of the problem, the pain we're trying to solve? and the essence of the solution for it. That's minimal, mm -hmm. but that's hard to do in practice. The V and the P, I think, are, I've got a different and unusual take on them. For the V, I tend to believe, at least for B2B, that viable means when someone writes you a check for it. Mm -hmm. It's not when someone says it's cool or that they like it or even that they're using it. I think in B2C, people will pay with their time, uh, but in B, I'd much rather have people pay by writing me a check. Mm -hmm. And then the P is interesting. I, I also have an unusual take on that. I like doing, my preference is a P that is not software mm -hmm. for a software company. Mm -hmm. Go and cobble together, use prototyping tools, use you know Google Forms as your front end interface, use Google uh, Sheets as your database. Be the mechanical Turk in the original notion, not the Amazon web service, but the medieval chess playing uh, cabinet where it's really a human behind, the, mm -hmm. the human computer behind the scenes. Go be the mechanical Turk for your product. Essentially make a non-software version of your software product. Have that be the P. Mm -hmm. And so you put it all together. What is the, the most narrow version of a product that is not software and someone is writing you a check for it? Mm -hmm. If you can do that, then you have an MVP. Then you know you have product market fit. Yeah. And it can also get into why. Like why would you go through something that seems as complex and hard as that? The answer is iterations. Yeah. It's going to take you, let's say, 50 iterations to find whatever the combination of things is that, that yields product market fit for you. If you have something that's in software, built in software, it's going to take you a week to do every iteration. Mm -hmm. And then you're looking at 50 weeks to find product market fit. Versus if you have something that's not software. Um, if it's you behind the scenes using off-the-shelf software and you yourself control it, you can iterate every night. Mm -hmm. Okay, it's going to take you 50 days to do those same 50 iterations. And so really it's about speed of execution. How quickly can you iterate to find that, that milestone of, okay, we have, we have product market fit. Mm -hmm. 
When it comes to customers writing the check, how much are you trying to refine the pricing versus just proving that they'll pay something for it? Absolutely don't try and refine. I think there's an engineering saying, premature optimization is the root mm -hmm. of all evil. Mm -hmm. What you want to do is you want to validate that someone will indeed pay for it. Mm -hmm. And you want to find out what category of spend are we talking about. When you're building businesses in B2B, there's, you know, there's enterprise spend where they're writing you quarter million or million dollar checks. Uh, there's mid-market spend where they're writing 50K a year. There's SMB spend where they might be spending 6 to 12K a year. Mm -hmm. There's consumer spend where they might spend anywhere from 5 to $100 a year. Mm -hmm. You need to figure out which category you're going to be in because that will change the kind of business you build around it. But you don't want to try and optimize around inside of that category, mm -hmm. how much can we get? Mm -hmm. There will be time for that. I love working with pricing models. Mm -hmm. I think tuning your pricing model is one of the highest leverage things you can do in a business. I think you should evaluate and tune your, business, your, your pricing model uh, every 12 or 18 months, but not in the first stage when you're trying to find product market fit. Mm -hmm. That's an incredibly difficult thing to do. It's, I think, what kills most startups is they don't have adequate product market fit. There isn't enough of a problem, and they don't have a, a solution that tightly solves that. So just focus on that. Mm -hmm. Don't worry about the pricing. Just prove that someone is willing to pay for it and roughly figure out what category are we in. Yeah. So does that mean that in practice you have an idea of what category you're in and you're talking to a potential real customer and you just throw out a number? Or do you ask them... How much would you pay for this? It's not dissimilar to all of the other aspects of trying to develop a product. Mm -hmm. You have a hypothesis, right? Mm -hmm. It's based on some analysis, some intuition, your background in that space. So you, you're likely to have a hypothesis on how much it's worth, on who is going to be writing the check, how much they might spend based on, for example, it could be a budget replacement. Mm -hmm. uh, you could be substituting for something that they're already spending money on, um, or it could be very similar to another category of thing that they also write a check for. Whatever it is, you're likely to have a hypothesis. Mm -hmm. So you're going to go in and you're going to validate that hypothesis. But don't try and optimize that Right. Now. So, so for example, for if you determine that you're going to be in the you know five to $12,000 a year range and you're talking to that potential customer and you say, this is $10,000 a year, and they say, well, we can do seven, <laughs> you're not really going to worry too much about that, right? You're going to be like, okay, we can do it for seven. You say done. Excellent. Right. Exactly. And move on yes. rather than trying to optimize. Yes. A year later, particularly not with those companies, mm -hmm. one of the things my co-founder did when we were selling those initial companies was he said, if I promise to never change the price on you, will you tell me what you really think of it? And they did. And they said, oh, by the way, you could have charged us twice as much. Right. So there's little tricks you can do. There's ways that when you're interviewing a customer, you can use certain types of questions that will help you get to, you know, pass the human emotion and figure out that rather difficult thing of how much is someone willing to pay. So there's, there's tricks you can do, but don't do them now. Don't do them at the early stage. Just figure out, is someone willing to pay and what, what category of spend are we talking about? Do all those things, all that price optimization uh, later on. That's when you think about, okay, how do we go from single axis to dual axis pricing structures you know, how do we build in, you know, platform? How do we build in professional services? There's layers and layers and layers you can do. Do them later. And then when it comes to the P, the product side, so, you know, you've made your MVP by not building software. You've pieced together existing solutions, mm -hmm. put something together. When do you cross that bridge? When do you know, okay, we're done iterating and now we're going to actually start to build something? I'll give you an oddly specific answer. Yeah. The answer is six. 
<laughs> I, I don't know why it's six. You know, it's funny. I, I was doing a lecture at MIT Sloan two, three years ago, and I was asked a similar question. You know, you're, mm-hmm. you're interviewing about a, a product or a feature, whatever it is, and and you've done these in-depth, qualitative, in-person interviews, which is what I recommend when you're doing this early work, as opposed to say survey quantitative right. work. And someone asked you, and how many do you do? And I said six. And I said, I don't know why it's six, but you know, do this a bunch. And then essentially, you know, the, the first two things, you don't see pattern. The first two interviews, you don't see pattern. Mm-hmm. The third, you start to smell some pattern. The fourth, you can actually definitely see some pattern here. The fifth, absolutely no question. And by the sixth, you're finishing their sentence for them. Mm-hmm. And you can't wait to get back and go work on iterating, building, whatever the, the thing is. And someone in the audience raised their hand and actually said, oh, you know, I'm a graduate student. I'm doing some work on this. And I can actually send you the, the mathematical proof of why it's six. Oh, wow. And I said, that's excellent. Thank you very much. <laughs> There's a reason why you don't want to go past six. Some mm-hmm. people may hear this and they may think, well, you know, we should do 20 interviews. Mm-hmm. Wouldn't 15 or 20 be better? And absolutely, they're better. Absolutely, you will learn more. You will end up doing 20 and 30 and many more interviews over the course of that product. You're doing six and then you're iterating. Mm-hmm. And then you're going out and doing another six and then iterating. Essentially what you're optimizing for is what is the, the gradient of learning of your curve. And as soon as you start to see that pattern and get confidence in whatever it is you were trying to test or discover, go back and iterate and then come back and do more, more mm-hmm. interviews. Right. So once you are ready to cross that bridge and start to build something, I'm sure it varies based on you know what the product actually is and that sort of thing. But in your experience, is there sort of the next initial steps that you think are important to set you on the right path in terms of building a successful business, particularly one that you think is going to be venture-backed? Yes. I have a, a somewhat, I think, also controversial approach to process in a company mm-hmm. in that I do believe that there is a place for process in startups. I don't like a lot of process early on in that first stage when you're trying to find product market fit. You've got a very focused singular mission and you don't need to scale at that point. Uh, You want to find a large market, but you don't want to be thinking about how do we optimize for scale right now? You really want to be focused on, is that market large enough? Is there enough of a pain and can we solve it? Mm -hmm. That next stage, as as you asked, is really then how do we start setting up the functions to, to wrap a business around that? And I think when you start thinking about building a business, you do start to think about what are the engines that will power each of those functions, sales, marketing, product, engineering, finance. Engines, if you think about the the nature of that concept, there's a repetition to them. If you wanted to go walk a mile, you would do a certain thing over and over. You would Mm -hmm. take steps. You wouldn't try and invent how to take a new step every time you were taking a step. You'd want to figure out what is the best way for you to travel be it walking or running or jogging or sprinting or whatever it is, and then do it over and over and iterate as you go. Mm -hmm. But there is a place and a benefit to process. It helps you scale. And so to answer your question, when when you found product market fit and you're starting to build each of those functions, you want to start to think about what is the engine that will is suitable for us in each of those areas. And it does help when you recognize that in each of those areas, particularly in, for example, in B2B software, Uh, You don't need to reinvent the wheel when you're thinking about those engines. Mm -hmm. Like in nature, there's a lot of pattern. A couple weeks ago, I was in, uh, spent some time with a a family member who was in the hospital for about a week. And, you know, when you're in the hospital for that long, you end up speaking with the doctors and just kind of chatting about, you know, life and science and things in general. And the doctor made an interesting comment, you know, when we're looking at diagnosis, he said, you know, look, when when you're looking at mammals, you know, the wiring and the plumbing, 
they're all kind of the same. You know, there are variations. That's why, mm-hmm. you know, there's a difference between us and a, and a giraffe. But generally speaking, you know, the wiring and the plumbing of mammals, there's a lot of pattern there. I think the same is true in business. Mm-hmm. When you look at B2B software, there's a lot of pattern that you can use when you're building a company around how you do marketing, sales, product management. And so the question is, what is the, what is the pattern that you can use? And then what are the pieces that you need to vary for your company? Mm-hmm. You wouldn't want to, for example, approach it as, hey, we're going to be super inventive and we're going to invent everything. I think while admirable, anytime you go to invent something, you're going to get some of it right and some of it wrong. Mm-hmm. And your startup already has a lot of risk around the idea itself. If you introduce risk in the business building part, you're increasing the likelihood that essentially of a false negative. You could have had the right idea at the right time, and your business could fail because you got something wrong on the business building side, which would be a shame. Mm-hmm. So instead, why not stand on the shoulders of others? Use the patterns and the learnings when you're building each of those engines and those functions and vary the pieces that need to be varied and different for your business. But you don't need to approach each of them blank slate. In product management, for example, it's you know some fairly nitty-gritty stuff, but it's like, you know, are, are you running Agile or Waterfall? Are you running, if it's Agile, is it Scrum or Kanban? You know, the two most common ones. If it's Scrum, what's your sprint frequency? One, two, or four weeks. And there's reasons why you would do one, two, or four weeks mm-hmm. at different stages of a company. What is your product manager to engineer ratio? You know, four to one will yield a very different style of build than eight to one. Uh, what is your ratio of designer to engineer? Um, do you use specs? How do you handle bugs? All of these things are essentially knobs that exist when you're defining and tuning that engine. And they exist in the other functions as well. In sales, it's, you know, do your AEs prospect? Uh, what is the ratio of BDRs to AE? How do you qualify and how do you define and triage your pipeline? Mm-hmm. Um, it exists in marketing. It's all of the functions. And so I think one of the, the things to recognize in that second stage when you're defining and building the initial, you're creating the initial engines in each of those functions is knowing what the knobs are mm-hmm. and then knowing which ones, roughly speaking, are in the right area. Um, that way you get it mostly right and you can then tune the knobs as mm-hmm. the business evolves. And it sounds like you're really saying that you don't believe in just like doing whatever and not being intentional about it and like figuring it out organically, even if you're not reinventing the wheel, but being intentional about the way that you're setting up your company and working is important. I think it's unnecessary to be inventive where you don't need to be inventive. Right. You will get some of it right and some of it wrong. Mm -hmm. And you run the risk of a false negative. During the initial phase of the company when you're trying to find product market fit, absolutely. You need to think outside the box Mm -hmm. because you need to find a solution that may not have been done before. And so you need to be able to not be tied to the processes and the patterns that have been done before, by definition. Once you find that and you think about how to wrap a business around it, that's when you can stand on the shoulder of others to help you mm-hmm. build that business. Mm-hmm. You don't. It, it would be unnecessary to feel like you need to invent everything. Have any of the companies that you've been a uh, part of been bootstrapped, or have they all been investment-backed? All investment-backed. Mm-hmm. Is that an intentional choice? Yes. Actually, let me let me caveat that. My wife runs a commercial farm. Mm-hmm. That's bootstrapped. But that doesn't have aspirations to achieve billion-dollar exits, mm-hmm. you know, venture outcomes. So I think one of the things you want to think about when you're starting a business is what are we trying to do with this? What's the mm-hmm. goal here? If you are building something that where the goal is to have it be strong and steady and, you know, a place in the community, 
then I think you can do that without running the enormous binary sorts of outcomes that you can get in a venture-funded situation. Mm -hmm. And the flip is also true. If you want to build a really large, massive, successful business, you need to take bets and lever yourself up Mm -hmm. in some way by being more aggressive in the growth of the company and and the bets that you make so that you can get those large outcomes. Does it really come down to the outcomes? Are there other important sort of factors that someone should consider, or is it really just about the outcomes? I think there's some business models that lend themselves, almost require mm-hmm. venture investing mm-hmm. or investing. Let's call it just investment in particular right, versus bootstrapping. Right. They're the types of business models that have a lot of capital requirement up front. Right. I mean, and it's not just you know software models. It's also you know if you're going to go build a, a steel mill, mm-hmm. that's hard for you and I to go start a steel mill, right. even if we see an amazing market for it you know, because they cost quite a bit of money to go build. So you would want to go find investors, right? It would be hard to bootstrap a steel mill. Likewise, you know, you're thinking about starting a software company and, you know, some types of companies in the software market, you can bootstrap. Services businesses are really nicely done when bootstrapped Mm -hmm. and you can run them as cash flow positive their entire life. In fact, there's a good argument why you'd want to, Mm -hmm. to keep it really clean and pure and true to you know, the operations and the and true to what they're trying to do for their customer. SaaS models are probably the opposite extreme. Right. You have very delayed cash flow when you acquire a customer. And so that delayed cash flow means, you, you know, you put in a lot of sales and marketing and development and you're not really getting paid for it. You're getting paid over five years. Right. And depending period. on the pricing, you might need a lot of customers. Exactly. So a, a common situation in SaaS is basically you can grow yourself into bankruptcy. Mm-hmm. And so that means that to grow, you'll need capital. And the faster you want to grow, the more capital you need. And at some point, you get past a level where you can really bootstrap it, where you mm-hmm. think to yourself, if we want to grow to the level that we want, we're going to need outside capital, period. We mentioned you were at Insight Squared, having founded the company for about eight years. And you mentioned earlier in the conversation, like you were feeling ready to move on. Mm. So what does that feel like? <laughs> what was driving that? Oh, that's a hard question. Yeah. I think it's when you stop really learning. Mm-hmm. The, the more shallow answer is when you, you know, day to day you realize it when you're going to work and you start thinking about how excited am I go to, to go to work. Early on, there's so many things that excite you about it. The problem you're solving, the thing you're building, the people you're working with. And over time, some of that diminishes. Hopefully you always enjoy the people you're working with, but building the organization, for example, when you've done that enough times and when it's gotten to a certain point, you know, you think to yourself, you're going to work every day. Am, am I really excited and, and loving this? And, and I think if you unpack that, well, certainly people are driven by different things. What, what gets them excited? I think for me it was what's driving that excitement? Am I learning when I go into work uh, every day? And so that's what made me think. You know, I've, I've done five of these startups. All of them have been B2B. In fact, all of them have been at the SMB mid-market mm-hmm. uh, end of B2B. My role in all of them has been product. Let's try something new. What could I do where I could really go out, be in the same general area to use the background and the the years that I spent here, but how do I go try something new? How do I reset the clock and how do I really go learn something? Mm -hmm. You know, is something new going to be a sixth startup? Likely not. Um, Is something new going to be, you know, building or revising a a product team at an existing late stage startup? Uh, Likely not. What about venture? You know, still in the software space, still working with B2B companies, in my example, but still very much a new, a new career. The, the thing you're doing is different. Mm-hmm. 
and that really excites me because I'm learning again. When you decided that it was time for you to move on, was the company ready for you to move on? Yes. Mm -hmm. We have a phenomenal team at Insight. The build side team there, the engineering and the product team, really, really worked well. There got to be a point where I was spending less of my day with the product team and actually more of my time over with the customer success team and the sales team and the marketing team, thinking about all the other aspects of the company besides product. And I think that's the point where you know you have such trust in your team, in your PMs and your design team and the engineers that, well, you'll always have some anxiety about stepping away, but it's so dramatically reduced that you can step away and say, you know what, this team has it, they've got it. So was it a fairly quick process then in terms of deciding personally to make that move and then actually doing it? No, of course not. <laughs> you know, it took two years, mm -hmm. at least a year. You know, as a founder, you're really emotionally invested in building this thing, in building the company, in the, the team that you're working with. All of the people that, you know, I've hired, I, I make a commitment to them, them personally, to help them in their careers. You can't step away from that lightly. Mm -hmm. That takes a while. When you made that personal decision for yourself, who did you tell? Uh, well, the first was my family uh -huh. thought about it. They were kind of involved all along. Mm -hmm. uh, the real first person I told was my co-founder. Mm -hmm. And how did they react? <laughs> it's difficult. When you co-found a, a company with someone, you're quite literally spending more working hours of your life with that person than you spend with your spouse for years. Mm -hmm. In fact, more years than maybe some marriages. And so in a very real way, the relationship you have with that person has as much weight and complexity as a marriage can have. And so for one person to step away and go do something like a new career or a new company is necessarily complicated, mm -hmm. uh, just in the way that you know, as humans, we're all you know, messy buckets of emotions. And so it, it is complicated, but at the same time, your co-founder is going to know you very well. And so they're going to know that you're wanting to go try something new, that you're going to want to go do something. And so at some point, because they're your co-founder, because they also are your partner in this, they're going to understand and, and want what's uh, best for you, even as they want what's best for the company. Mm -hmm. and so then it, it really turns into a question of, at some point, at some level, they will understand. Right. And then really just the question of is how to do it mm -hmm. so that you take care of the people and the customers and the company. The idea that founders move on from, particularly I think from venture-backed companies, isn't unusual. It's not even really that unexpected that that might happen eventually. There might be an exit eventually. People will move on. So were you doing it before it was expected? No. Mm -hmm. uh, eight years was the longest almost by a factor of two that I had worked at any previous company. Right. And we actually have a, a third co-founder on the tech side who is one of the best V0 to V1 prototypers I've ever encountered. And so as an example, he had actually moved on a couple years before this. Right. And completely not unexpected because people, especially founders, will have talents and areas of focus that they are best at. And particularly with founders it's likely to be in the early stages of company building. Mm -hmm. Some founders, uh, like my co-founder, will be also good at how do you scale that and do the later stages, um, but not necessarily. My focus has always been how do I do the early stages? Mm -hmm. How do I do the, 
the product market fit, the early functional development, uh, the initial scaling. That's really why I, where I enjoy things. And so I, it's not really what I'm best at, what I enjoy, nor what someone would want me for to be figuring out how do we do the late stage growth of a company. There are people who are better than that. As a founder, I want people who are better at that in this company. Yeah. Now, flipping it back around and finishing on the investment side, like as an investor, how do you think about when you're looking at a company or working with someone who you've invested in? Like, how do you think about founders? I think exactly the same way. Mm -hmm. When they're at the early stages of building a company, they're ideally suited for that because they have the passion and they can figure out what is this right thing to build. And oftentimes they're very good at building those, the initial stages of a company. And some of them, many of them, will also turn out to be very good at building the later growth stages of a company, depending on what their background and what their talents are. And so I, th I think the key is to recognize with them that they want the same thing that an investor does, is to, is to build a successful company. Mm -hmm. And they will generally know if they are the right person, if they're good at the ongoing later stages of development. And they will say, hey, I'm, I'm not the right person for this, or we're, we're running on all cylinders, let's, mm -hmm. let's keep running. Mm -hmm. So I, I don't think there's a rule where, you know, for example, early stage founders you know, can't also take a company public. I think it's absolutely false. Mm -hmm. I think it really depends on the person. And I think the key is just self-awareness, not only as investors or even founders just as people, but just the self-awareness to know where are you best suited in building this company. Mm -hmm. And as long as you have that self-awareness, then whatever is appropriate will, will pan out. Mm -hmm. And it's probably hard enough that it's a forcing function, right? <laughs> like going public is not easy, right? And so if you're not well-suited to do it, it's going to feel obvious to you. I, I don't know. I've never done it before. So I, I think it, it becomes obvious way before then. Mm -hmm, right. Um, you know, we, we talked earlier about the, mm -hmm. the first three stages of development. I think there's likely a, you could probably put a wrapper around a fourth stage leading up to or even growing past the IPO, which is really the, the late stage growth. It's a very different animal than the early stage growth. There are people who are excellent managers and late stage growth builders and operators who are very good at that stage of growth of a company. And a company will be in that phase long before they long mm -hmm. before they go public. Mm -hmm. And a founder who is good at the early stages, it'll become very quickly for them when they pass, for example, they pass 250 people. The daily challenges become much more about how do we hire people who can more or less do the same role in the same way rather than you know, launching the new product. Essentially, you're, you're building more and more for the pattern and less and less for the variation. Mm -hmm. I think it becomes very clear to a, a person, not, not even just a founder, when the company develops into a, a type of company that is not their forte, mm -hmm. if they have that self-awareness, if they mm -hmm. can say to themselves, hey, you know, I'm, I'm not excited going to work anymore. How, why is that? Right. There's also a possibility, I, I presume, that someone could be good at it, but still not enjoy it. I don't think so. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. I think that one of the things that makes us good at something mm -hmm is when we really like thinking about it. Like, we like doing it. We really enjoy it. And that means that we, we think about it in the shower. Mm -hmm. We think about it when we're dreaming. You know, when you like something, you, it makes you 5 or 10% better at it than mm -hmm. someone who doesn't. Mm -hmm. And that 5 or 10% over time can make you excellent at something. So I, I think it's very difficult, let's say, to be 
good at something if you don't actually really enjoy it yeah. at some level. Well, Sam, thanks for stopping by and sharing your experience and your insight. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. If people want to you know, find out more or follow along with you, where's the best place for them to do that? You know, I'm, I'm not really a Twitter guy. <laughs> yeah. I'm on LinkedIn, but really the easiest way is just send me an email. I'm sam at accomplice.co. Excellent. You can subscribe to the show and find notes for this episode at giantrobots.fm. If you have questions or comments, email us at hosts at giantrobots.fm. And you can find me on Twitter at cpytel. This podcast is brought to you by ThoughtBot and produced and edited by Tom Mabarski. Thanks for listening and see you next time. This podcast was brought to you by ThoughtBot. We are experienced designers and developers who turn your idea into the right product. With local studios in Boston, San Francisco, New York, London, Austin, and Raleigh, let's build something great together.